It's beginning to look like we're going to have a nail-biter here because polls have the race tightening as Republicans gain momentum. But in what could be a good sign for Democrats, early voting turnout is breaking records, possibly. Because of those signs outside of polling stations, democracy closing, everything must go. Oh, I wish that was as funny as it sounds. But it ain't. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it's not. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, and Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. Palinville, New York on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF, and as I'm reading through those, I'm thinking in my mind, every single one of those places right around now has a really important race, a really tight race in uh, the upcoming elections. We're also streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Dieter Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Uh, yes, it looks like it's going to be a nail-biter indeed. I have been uh, warning as much for many months. Yes, I don't have any nails I, left to bite. I know, <laughs> I know. I, t- I will tell you this. Uh, in the meantime, uh, boy, oh boy, boy howdy, does this nation miss Jon Stewart every night on The Daily Show. He uh, he retired, of course, about seven years ago now from The Daily Show, I think it was. His uh, replacement, Trevor Noah, uh, who himself recently announced he's going to be leaving the show in December. He's good, but he ain't no Jon Stewart, particularly when it comes to the interview segments. That's really where the nation misses Jon Stewart, and I can't help but wonder, you know, he left... Before Donald Trump, uh, back in uh, 2016, before Donald Trump became president, I can't help but wonder how things might have been different. I don't know that they would have been, but at least he is excellent at doing interviews where he holds feet to fire. Well, he was and he still is. And that is really where the nation misses John Stewart the most. He does have another show now, though it's not daily and it's only available to those who subscribe to Apple TV, which I do not. But as the Daily Beast noted uh, yesterday in posting this clip from Mr. Stewart, 
Uh, for a new episode of his show called The Problem with John Stewart, focused on the midterm elections, Stewart sat down with Arizona's Republican Attorney General Mark Burnovich to confront him about his efforts to appease the MAGA Republicans in his state. The Daily Beast misleadingly describes them as conservatives in his state. Those who still believe that the 2020 election was stolen from former President Donald Trump. The Attorney General Brnovich justifies his actions by citing the, quote, millions of people in Arizona and across the country who, quote, think the election was fraudulently decided. Uh, in the uh, short clip from the longer interview, uh, Stewart repeatedly tries to get Brnovich to admit that Trump is simply wrong about the election being stolen from him. But Brnovich refuses to do so. The Daily Beast notes that uh, what makes Brnovich's current refusal to uh, risk angering Donald Trump and his followers all the more bizarre is that Brnovich did not always have this conspiratorial attitude about the election that he was overseeing in 2020 as attorney general. In fact, just days after the 2020 election, Brnovich stated publicly that he saw no evidence to suggest that Joe Biden's win in Arizona was in any way suspicious. But then Mark Brnovich decided he wanted to run for the U.S. Senate in the state, and all of a sudden he had a very different message. He called in, for example, to a far-right podcast to say that his investigation as attorney general was turning up, quote, serious concerns. Well, uh, there, in fact, uh, have been no such concerns. Among the dozen or so people who were charged with fraud in 2020 in Arizona by Brnovich over the past two years, most were uh, voters who unlawfully voted twice because they cast a ballot that was sent to them for a relative, for example, who died or something like that. Or maybe because they had property in two different states and they thought they were allowed to vote in both of the states when they weren't. There was, you know, there was no massive uh, effort to defraud the people of Arizona with what would have had to have been thousands and thousands of fraudulent votes to claim that there was any serious concerns as Brnovich did, about the results of the uh, 2020 election in Arizona is by now ridiculous. It was ridiculous when when he went on, when he was running for office, uh, hoping to get the Republican nomination there. It was ridiculous then, but it's certainly ridiculous now. But as the Daily Beast notes, the damage was done by Brnovich when he said everything was fine originally. The damage was done among Republicans and uh, Brnovich, who is himself, by the way, a vote suppressor, he went all the way to the to the Supreme Court successfully to argue that two laws that were adopted by Arizona were perfectly constitutional, resulting in yet more gutting of the Voting Rights Act by the U.S. Supreme Court. So this guy is no rhino. Anyway. The damage was done when he dared to admit that everything was fine originally after the election, and that meant he lost out on Trump's endorsement, and that means he lost out on winning the Republican nomination for the U.S. Senate. Trump threw his weight behind the even farther right, uh, right-wing candidate Blake Masters, 
who is now currently in a pretty close race to unseat incumbent Democratic Senator Mark Kelly. Anyway, with that preamble, here's that teaser clip from John Stewart's interview with Arizona's soon-to-be former Attorney General Mark Burnovich trying to get him to simply say that, yeah, the election in Arizona in 2020 was perfectly fair. Right now we have about, I think, almost 20 criminal cases related to the 2020 election. Out of 4 million votes. Yeah, no, I'm talking in facts, John. But the reality is, is there are millions of people, not only in Arizona, but people throughout this country that think the election is stolen. There's people that believe in angels, but that doesn't mean you launch an oh, investigation see, that angels changed ballots. But, like but, 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 a bit but, of a tautology. When you have a former president spreading rumors yeah. to his supporters, for instance, Trump can say 74,000 mail-in ballots received that were never mailed, magically appearing ballots. 168,000 fraudulent ballots printed on illegal paper. 36,000 ballots illegally cast by non-citizens. Now, the truth is, none of that was real. When it first came out, the cyber ninja said, Joe Biden won Arizona. And then they got a lot of pushback, and then they started hedging and hawing. And then next thing you know, people were like, well, Brnovich needs to do something about it. And then it was like... A hot mess. But you've responded by doing things about it. You've what I've done said is, you're still investigating. We've run it. We've run a lot of the stuff to ground. And, when, I, I, and I, when you get it to ground, will you come out and say Donald J. Trump is wrong? The election in Arizona was fair, not stolen, and not fraudulent. I, I have always been a straight shooter, and once, no, once all the facts and evidence are in. John, John, come on, man. I'm telling you. I, you have found no evidence that the election in Arizona was fraudulent or stolen from Donald Trump. Donald Trump lost Arizona, period. I've said that from the very beginning. There have been isolated incidences thus far that we've identified and we are prosecuting. We still have some active investigations going on, but people can draw their own conclusions. There is no, no, people cannot draw their own conclusions. That's the point of the law. Yeah, it is. The law is that you have facts And you have fiction. Right. The fact is, the election in Arizona was well run, not fraudulent, and not stolen from Donald Trump, according to even your investigation. I I have never said. Why is it it so hard to just say yes to that? I just, I guess because I've spent my entire, most of my career as a prosecutor, and we still have some ongoing cases. So in your mind, you still feel like after all this, you're going to discover no. a concerted effort to steal the election from Donald Trump and, and that it was fraudulent. Is that what you're saying? No, that's not what I'm saying. So why can't you say the election in 2020 was not stolen or fraudulent? I will tell you this. As I said, this I, is blowing my is mind. It really? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I, it, and it's his point. People can draw their own conclusion. Uh, no, they shouldn't have to do that. That's what your job is as the attorney general of, of Arizona, is to draw that conclusion, is to use the law and to determine if that's the case. And two years later, uh, he he knows it's not the case, but he just, just he can't say, say it. it. Can't say it. I saw someone uh, responding to that interview on Twitter, I think, said something like, America doesn't deserve John Stewart. <laughs> 
they were right. We don't. But boy, am I glad that he is still around at least a little. But it's bad enough for a partisan Republican attorney general to be unable to say that the election was not stolen from Trump when there is no evidence to show that it was. In fact, quite the opposite, that Donald Trump himself tried to steal the election. But what may be arguably worse you know, is is that across the country, people don't know one way or another because the media have failed to make that clear to them. They're still open to, you know, folks like Brnovich. They allow them to come on him to come on the show, say he's always looking into this. He's looking into that. Rarely do you see any of them, any of the folks in the actual news media pressing uh, a guy like Brnovich for real answers the way John Stewart does. John Stewart should be on 60 Minutes every week. They ran a, a piece on Dominion voting systems uh, I saw a few days ago where they basically allowed the head of the company to just lie. Anderson Cooper was interviewing him, asked, oh, is it possible that your machines could flip votes if they wanted to? And the guy said, no, absolutely not. Here's the deal. They absolutely could. There is no evidence that they did, but their machines absolutely could. We need some real media in this uh, in this country. Uh, I, uh, so or at least the media that does their job. But all of this is, you know, I will also note, by the way, that the Daily Beast who posted this clip, they say exclusively uh, that uh, they re they report that Brnovich justifies his actions by citing the millions of people in Arizona and across the country who think the election was fraudulently decided. But the Daily Beast never actually bothers to point out in their article that it wasn't fraudulently decided. Good Lord. They never say it. That's like minimum journalism. Exactly. So uh, that minimum was not met by either the Daily Beast or it's a senior writer, Matt Wilstein, who uh, who posted that video and never bothered to mention that, no, the election was not stolen. But it is another example of how our corporate media are failing the nation. We will uh, be joined momentarily by Brian Hansbury of the Media and Democracy Project to discuss exactly that and how the corporate media could, if they wanted and, of course, should do better. Uh, and do better quickly in covering our critical midterm elections, which are underway now, ending on November 8th, and likely to determine whether democracy itself will live or die between now and the next election, the 2024 presidential election. But more on uh, more on that shortly. Very quickly, before we get there, while you may not get actual critical facts from the media that you need to know before casting your vote this year, you have likely heard time and again now how the horse race is going in all of these elections and how the pre-election polls, which may be right or may be wrong, are tightening up the closer that we get to November 8. One of the most critical U.S. Senate races in the country is between Pennsylvania's Lieutenant Governor uh, Democratic uh, candidate John Fetterman 
and Republican TV doctor Mehmet Oz. They are now said to be essentially in a dead heat in the contest for U.S. Senate to fill the seat by uh, retiring Republican Senator Pat Toomey. 538's polling average finds Fetterman up by uh, up over Oz by about 2.3 points. The Real Clear Politics polling average says Fetterman leads by just over one point. In other words, all within the margin of error, uh, as we head into the final stretch here, uh, essentially a dead heat. Well, last night, the two squared off in their one and only debate, which got quite a bit of coverage. But receiving less coverage was a candidate who announced he was dropping out of that very same race. Now, on yesterday's program, uh, I had to step back for a bit. We shared an email from a listener on an unrelated topic uh, he had referenced in his email to bradcast at bradblog.com. The Green Party presidential candidate from 2004, who the emailer had described incorrectly, in my opinion, as hapless. Uh, he was incorrect about that because that candidate presidential candidate for the Green Party in 2004, David Cobb, ended up joining forces with the Libertarian Party that year after the disputed election in Ohio between John Kerry and George W. Bush to challenge the results. The Democrats wouldn't do it, so uh, the Green Party and the Libertarians did. They challenged the results in Ohio by seeking a recount, and in the course of that post-election challenge, it was discovered discovered that a number of uh, top election officials in the state's largest county had, in fact, gamed the recount. They were sentenced to the maximum penalty in jail. Uh, but David Cobb did something else that no Green Party presidential candidate, to my knowledge, has done since. In the days just prior to what was known to be a very, very close race in Ohio, Cobb said that voters in any state where the race was really close between Kerry and Bush should not vote for him, but should vote for the Democrat, John Kerry, instead, which was a very noble thing for the progressive movement in this country. So, yeah, David Cobb, I think, is a great guy who has also been on the show many times over the years. He is not hapless at all. So why do I take that detour? Well, because in Pennsylvania, Everett Stern, who dropped out of Pennsylvania's Republican primary for U.S. Senate earlier this year, choosing to run as an independent write-in instead, well, he had been polling about at about 3% in that critical dead-heat U.S. Senate race in Pennsylvania, according to Fox News in late September. Well, on Wednesday, Everett Stern announced he was both dropping out and endorsing the Democratic candidate, John Fetterman. My fellow Americans, I'm here uh, to address you today um, about the U.S. Senate race occurring in Pennsylvania. Uh, my name is Everett Stern. I'm currently running as an independent for U.S. Senate uh, here in Pennsylvania. And right now, uh, it's John Fetterman, Oz, and myself. And right now, I'm polling at about three uh, to five percent, around around three, uh, probably on average. As you know, the race in Pennsylvania um, is extremely uh, close. I want to make very clear uh, today uh, that I, Everett Stern, am now uh, uh, resigning and am no longer running in the United States Senate race in Pennsylvania. Um, I fully endorse uh, John Fetterman, and I want to make crystal, crystal clear here 
that Pennsylvania must go blue uh, in this election. Uh, the Democrats uh, need to win this. Uh, Oz is being backed uh, by Trump and by Flynn, and that is simply uh, unacceptable. So on election day, do not write my name in. Uh, please donate to John Fetterman. He needs uh, as much support um, as, as possible. And uh, it is absolutely essential, again, that the Democrats uh, win this election. He went on to explain that he feels it's necessary to put country over party in his case, because remember, he was a Republican. His reference there to Flynn, that's to Mike Flynn, uh, Donald Trump and Mike Flynn, who are supporting uh, Mehmet Oz in that race. Speaking to NBC News, Stern said he wants to, quote, make sure democracy doesn't fail. And he doesn't want voters to, quote, waste a vote on me. Oz has the support of Trump, and that was enough for Everett Stern to reassess his campaign. He said, quote, I could inadvertently hurt democracy, and I believe Fetterman is the better man for the job. So good for Everett Stern. And while it was only polling about 3%, given how tight that race is in Pennsylvania, that 3% who might have planned to vote for Stern to write him in, but may now switch to the candidate that Stern has endorsed, John Fetterman, well, that could make the difference in this race. Yes, every every vote is going to count. Of course, it's only uh, going to make a difference if the voters know about it, know that he has dropped out and that he is endorsing Fetterman. So, hey, anyone listening to the show in Pennsylvania, now you know. Spread the word. Yes, please. Uh, as my guest coming up momentarily highlights, it is up to we the people, I think, to spread the word on important stuff like this, to share what is actually going on in this year's critical elections, given how none of the races ending in two weeks time on November 8th should be nearly as close as they are now, given what, you know, folks should know by now about these candidates and about the threat they pose to democracy. Uh, you know, if the nation's corporate media were doing their job to serve democracy, which is now hanging by a thread, as Mr. Stern made clear in Pennsylvania on Wednesday, well, uh, we wouldn't have to do what we do at all here. But I guess we still do. Let's take a quick break and we will be joined by Brian Hansbury of the Grassroots Media and Democracy Project. They are trying to do their part as well to and we'll be discussing, well, all of the above. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to the non-corporate listener sponsored and supported Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. I've had enough. That's a lot to ask. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, listeners of the Bradcast and, of course, readers of bradblog.com likely know by now that for, oh, I don't know, the last two years or so, we have 
likely been annoying the hell out of you by pointing out the mainstream corporate media's increasingly absurd euphemisms used to avoid simply educating the electorate of the indisputable truth that Donald Trump and his MAGA minions tried over and over and over again in arguably dozens of ways to steal the 2020 presidential election from the American people. They did not simply try to reverse or undermine the results or to roll them back or to undo the results. Sure, Trump was, as many in the corporate media have described, quote, hoping to remain in the White House. But how was he hoping to do that? Well, by attempting to steal a presidential election. It seems pretty simple. The evidence is indisputable at this point. Even the chair of the bipartisan U.S. House Select Committee investigating the Trump-incited insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, Congressman Benny Thompson, referred during the committee's proceedings at least at one time to Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 election. It's easy to remember. And it's true. But sure, undermine or reverse or roll back, I guess that works as well, at least if you want to make sure that the public does not really know what happened when a president of the United States for the first time in known history personally worked tirelessly to steal a presidential election. We spoke with former Washington Post columnist and now longtime press critic Dan Frumkin a few weeks ago about exactly that. And I asked his opinion based on his years of experience inside of corporate media, why it is that they seem allergic to simply telling the truth to the American people about such a critical matter so that the people, the electorate, can be well informed when they go to vote this year. Uh, with many of these same people now on the ballot. His response? For the longest time, they wouldn't say any, any politician lied because that was too loaded. I suspect that steel is also, they consider it too loaded, even though in this case it is absolutely honest to God, you know, couldn't be more true explanation. Correct. Frumkin went on to say that in the U.S. corporate media, something that I found chilling, he said that truth itself had become politicized inside these newsrooms. Well, it is now nearly two years since Donald Trump and his pro-authoritarian MAGA mob attempted to steal a presidential election before all of our eyes, even attacking the U.S. Capitol to try and do so. And yet dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of pro-election theft Republican candidates are on the ballot this year. Many of them are running for positions to oversee elections in some way that would allow them to help in the theft of the 2024 presidential election in ways that legitimate elected officials were able to prevent, at least, in 2020. Many of those far-right candidates are likely to win in the November 8 elections, putting American democracy itself, as President Joe Biden correctly warned recently in a landmark speech, on the ballot this year. Democracy is on the ballot this year in advance of the next presidential election. And yet our, our top corporate media still refer to election deniers and skeptics at best in their coverage of these 2022 contests, just as they spent years describing those who deny the irrefutable science of climate change as climate deniers or climate change skeptics. 
basically allowing the vast global consensus of climate scientists to be disregarded as just the opinion of one side of a political dispute. Who's right? Tens of thousands of scientists devoted to the science of climate change or the big oil industry and those candidates who receive millions of dollars from them. Who knows? We'll let the voters decide. Writing at Salon this past week, Brian Hansberry, co-founder of the Grassroots Media and Democracy Project, wrote in a critical op-ed, For the last two years, much of the Republican Party has been claiming that any elections they lose must in some way be illegitimate. Some Republicans have even encouraged threats of violence toward beleaguered election workers. Now election liars are on the ballot across the country. Note, he describes them as election liars, not deniers, not skeptics. Lying, he writes, fomenting violence and refusing to accept the will of the people should be political non-starters for candidates in a democracy. Yet, rather than depict them as dangerously unfit, too many newsrooms have been protecting the electoral viability of these extremists. Journalists who know the 2020 presidential election was free and fair still frequently describe those who lie about it as mere skeptics. He writes, who, quote, Dispute the results. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The 2020 midterms, he goes on to argue, are a referendum on how well America's newsrooms have conveyed the authoritarian threat to the voting public. He then goes on to, quote, call on the news media to urgently communicate that this is not an, ex an ordinary election but rather a contest between would-be authoritarians and candidates who defend the rule of law and the electoral system. Well, that sounds about right. Joining us now is Brian Hansberry of the Media and Democracy Project, an all-volunteer grassroots, grassroots group of regular citizens, yes, folks like you, who have come together to promote civic engagement with the media reform movement in the U.S., such that we have one. They focus on the crazy concept that meeting the critical information needs of the citizenry is an essential bulwark of an inclusive, representative democracy. Brian Hansberry, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thanks so much for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here so that we can talk about these extremely important uh, aspects of our media and how it's failing. And thank you for your excellent piece at Salon on this, headlined, Media Isn't Doing Nearly Enough to Defend Democracy, But It's Not Too Late to Change. We'll see if it's too late or not. That, that uh, article, I should note, was published at Salon. Now, nothing against Salon, Brian. I spent many years writing for them myself, but, myself, but did you uh, try to pitch a similar op-ed to, oh, I don't know, the New York Times or the Washington Post by any chance? Uh, we did not shoot for the poster, the Times, um, partially because uh, maybe of how critical we've we've been of them over the the last few years. Mm -hmm. um, but really, we just wanted to get it out there. We just wanted to get this perspective from, again, regular citizens. Um, you know, we're huge fans of Dan Frumkin. It's mm -hmm. awesome that you had him on the show. But mm -hmm. what we sort of feel is our unique. Um, Thing that we can offer is that we're just regular people like everyone else listening to this who see the problems with media, who recognize that there's a journalism crisis in our country, and who are terrified that it is marching us towards fascism and a potential future where we're not able to have votes that have any meaning moving forward. So um, we didn't pitch it to the big guns, um, 
we did pitch it around a little bit mm-hmm. uh, before we landed at Salon, but uh, we we chose to avoid the times in the post. You uh, you hit on a key point uh, right near the top of your piece when you note, uh, quote, studies show that the issues most important to voters closely match which issues the media has been covering. So, uh, Brian, is this a, a sort of a chicken and egg thing? Are the media covering the issues that voters care about or uh, do those studies find that voters end up caring about the issues that media has been covering and focusing on. Right. So there's studies that go back to the 70s of, you know, asking people about what matters to them and comparing that to, you know, the coverage that has preceded it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it shows, and and those sorts of studies show that it's really uh, a never-ending cycle. And it's basically that media establishes narratives human beings who are living their lives, going to work, raising their children, trying to engage in their hobbies, you know, are in the background. All of that is happening. And then they pick up on the narratives that media is pushing. Mm-hmm. And then that, those become the answers mm-hmm. in, in the polls that really just don't amount to anything in terms of informing all of us. Mm-hmm. It's just a reflection, uh, as it were, of what we've all been hearing, right? It's impossible to uh, detach our understanding of politics from the filters through which they come to us, mm-hmm. right? So we all live our lives, and then uh, when asked about what's going on in the world, our only recourse to talk about what's going on in the world, especially politics and politicians and the things they think and say, we're not there objectively observing that one-to-one with our eyes and our ears. So we are getting that information from news media. Yeah, yeah. And no those studies show they show they show that that is the case. Yeah, it, that was a, a fascinating point to me, actually, because we do see all of these uh, these polls from these same media outlets. What you know? What what do the uh, Americans care most about? And as it turns out, it is the thing that the media have been reporting to them in the first place. And I would argue underscores the importance of the media and what they choose to cover and how they choose to cover it. Uh, You cite a uh, recent open letter that Media and Democracy distributed to executives and publishers of major media organizations. I want to sort of talk about what you describe as a sort of three-point, quote, set of guidelines for pro-truth, pro-democracy election coverage between now and Election Day. And I would argue beyond Election Day, since this thing is going to go on for quite a while, I suspect. But uh, before hitting those points... In, uh, specifically, have, have you heard back from any of those executives or publishers in response to your letter yet? No, we have not. Do you expect to? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I would imagine that perhaps, um, you know, a sort of, you know, non-top tier editor might get back to us. Mm-hmm. Um, really, most of that effort is to raise awareness, Right. Um, we want to be telling people that that's what we're doing because we want people to be doing the same thing. We want the average citizen to be engaging with the people who make their news. We want it to be a conversation, and we want people to be letting newsmakers and newsrooms know when they're being let down. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, 
it, it would be wonderful if we got responses and engagement from the executives of major national news corporations. You, you know, um, what, one of the points that uh, actually I saw in a Dan Frumkin column, I think, uh, over this past week was he he cited, I think it was Dean Baquette, the uh, editor at The New York Times or now the former editor of The New York Times back after the 2016 election and uh, Baquette said basically, well, we hear complaints from all sides, uh, so we must be doing something right. That's sort of how they interpret it. Um, I don't know if I would interpret it that way. Uh, you know, it maybe it's that they are doing something terribly wrong, and at least one of those two sides that are contacting them uh, might be correct in their complaints. But let's uh, let's step through your three points here, uh, Brian Hansberry. First, you call on the media to make threats to democracy clear. Uh, this is the first of three points you say the media need to embrace uh, over the next you know, couple of weeks before the midterm elections. Make threats to democracy clear. What does that mean exactly as you see it? Sure. So when people are willing to, when elected officials are willing to lie to the American public about elections, that is a direct threat to democracy. If we are not, through our news media, holding those people to account and calling those people liars and using the word lie. Mm -hmm. We are softening the effect of their effort. And so we are softening the ability for us to understand and respond correctly and adequately to that threat. You know, if you're a Republican voter or if you're a Democratic voter, after this election, if we put people who are fascists, right, they're willing to seek power outside of democratic means. Mm -hmm. If we put those people into power, we have no recourse after that, whether you're a Republican voter or a Democratic voter. You've handed the keys to the kingdom to people who do not respect you and who do not respect democracy or the electoral process in our country. So when it comes to media coverage, we need them to be using much more forceful language. Like you said, you gave some of the examples of saying that, you know, candidates support Trump's false claim. Well, that's actually that candidate lying. Mm -hmm. They're making a false claim of their own, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we're constantly using euphemism, when we're using stenography to just spread disinformation that an elected official or a candidate for office may, um, you know, mm -hmm. may just, they say a, they say a direct quote, that direct quote is shared without context, then we're all let down and we are unclear uh, as to what threat we are under. Um, and specifically the both sides thing that you're talking about, right? There's this false equivalence that's constantly maintained in our national media between normal candidates and normal, I just mean those who don't lie to us about elections and these anti-democracy Republicans, right? And that normalizes the election lies and it allows for there to be this permission amongst all of us who may believe those lies to continue to uh, you know, lie about elections mm -hmm. or doubt elections when you know and you expressed earlier in the segment that it's irrefutable that the 2020 election was not you know, affected by any type of fraud. You uh, and you sort of jumped, I think, to the second point there, uh, which is protect Americans from disinformation. But one of the points 
uh, that you make in in that first group uh, about making threats to democracy clear. You say, uh, quote, abandon false equivalence between normal candidates and anti-democracy Republicans as that normalizes election lies. But, uh, Brian, doesn't that also force media to pick a side between the two candidates? And, And is that what media should be doing? Well, I think that media should be a partisan for democracy. So, yes, I do think in this uh, day and age, in ahead of the 2022 midterms, that they should be picking a side, and that should be the side of democracy, right? So um, I have a great example for you about this false equivalence from mm-hmm. just the other day from the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Uh, the headline is, Fears over fate of democracy leave many voters frustrated and resigned. Mm-hmm. This is a piece by Jonathan Weisman. Yep. And in this piece, there is the paragraph, and it starts pretty unbelievably. It says, of course, just what is threatening democracy depends on who you talk to. <laughs> it goes on to say many Republicans, Republicans are just as frustrated, convinced that the threat stems from liberal teachers, professors, or media personalities who they fear are indoctrinating their children, undocumented immigrants given a path to citizenship, or Democrats widening access to voting so much that they are inviting fraud. So what are those examples given by Weissman about what Republican voters are afraid of have anything to do with a threat to democracy, right? Mm -hmm. Those are the bad faith arguments of the extremist Republicans who are already lying to them in the first place. So here we have Weissman just really baldly creating this false equivalence. Um, And so, yes, I think to get back to your question, They should pick the side of democracy. And what we've seen for the last two years, and especially directly after the January 6th coup attempt, was that very quickly the Sunday shows Mm -hmm. or, you know, any of the nightly news shows or the Washington Post or the New York Times were bringing on the likes of, you know, Rick Scott or Ted Cruz Mm -hmm. to give their opinions when Mm -hmm. they had just lied to all of America, right? So, um... I think when people are lying to the public, when elected officials are lying to the public, that's a time when um, journalists and newsrooms should be taking the side of those who aren't lying to the public about something so fundamental to our rights and freedoms and democracy as elections. You uh, very quickly, your third point here, and and this is uh, critical as well, and one I've been pondering for years, I I have not spent uh, as much time discussing it uh, myself, but I I think uh, the the third point that you're calling on uh, from media is to, quote, cover elections as if they matter more than sports scores. And it's really on the money. I mean, if you look at this point at any of the coverage of elections now, even uh, what I will describe as the legitimate coverage, as opposed to the out and out you know, propaganda that we see on, on Fox so-called news. But even at CNN and MSNBC, Uh, Much of the coverage looks damn near identical to what we would see on ESPN, Brian. Absolutely. Um, You know, leads are slipping. uh, Battles are taking place. Um, The language of sports and contest is, you know, um, just basically the language of our political journalism. Mm -hmm. And it is a disservice to the public. Um, we deserve to have 
the issues of the day that are life and death can mean the difference between freedom and fascism. We deserve to have those issues be what takes precedence and not polls and predictions. Mm. Uh, you know, it's, it's ignoring substance for, uh, you know, flash and drama and clickbait because, again, we have a corporate media system in our, in our country that largely dominates. And they're going to be trying to maximize profit, maximize clicks and engagement. And so, you know, we're treated, um, really we're disrespected as citizens who deserve quality information when we are subjected to a constant horse race or sports frame uh, of our political issues and our politics. And, you know, I, I uh, appreciate the, you know, that media outlets don't much care for folks like you telling them how they should do their job or me telling them how they should do their job or even Dan Frumkin uh, telling them. But isn't the fact that here we are two years after the 2020 election, some 70 percent of Republicans uh, two years later actually believe that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. Doesn't that in and of itself, isn't that slam dunk proof that the media themselves have failed here? I mean, it's interesting that they keep uh, sort of repeating this number, taking these polls, saying, oh, my gosh, look, 70 percent of Republicans think it was stolen. Isn't that an indictment? of them themselves, their work, the media's work uh, themselves, that so many Americans would feel that way this many years later, despite the lack of any evidence that it was actually stolen? Well, it speaks to two things, right? It speaks to that normalization, right? That platforming of liars and making um, this momentously dangerous uh, behavior by people in positions of power and public trust. You know, it speaks to just the, the letdown um, that, that we're all suffering under by our media, but it also speaks to the massive right-wing disinformation complex, right? Mm-hmm. It speaks mm-hmm. to the fact that um, those 70% of people are getting their news and information from sources that are willing to traffic in all of these lies. Um, and it also speaks to why, again, uh, we think it might be a good idea for journalists to be partisan to democracy mm. and not to, um, you know, suggest that uh, the truth lies at a midway point between the two parties. Um, you know, when one party is given over to lying, the truth is going to, you know, lie somewhere uh, a little closer to those who aren't doing the lying. And so when people are willing to disrespect their constituents to such a degree that they will lie to them, um, I think that... Uh, you know, it's a time for journalists to take note of that and to reflect a little bit on, you know, their priorities mm. and, and what it means to be a journalist and to inform the public with truth as it accords to facts and reality, with context and with transparency. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a thing about transparency is that, you know, we read the New York Times, we read the Washington Post, you know, as Americans who want to get news about politics. And often, you know, on an op-ed, for instance, um, there could be an op-ed, uh, there was an op-ed uh, recently in the New York Times um, from someone from the Claremont Institute. Oh, boy. Claremont Institute is a <laughs> yeah. long-running uh, Republican think tank 
who in the last few years has fully given itself over to um, the big lie. Mm-hmm. They have fellows like Jack Posobiec, that's mm-hmm. how you pronounce his name, mm-hmm. like Charlie Kirk, and they ran an op-ed, a guest essay, um, from someone who writes for the Claremont Review of Books that, uh, that said, um, basically, let me get the headline for you. The January 6th committee has been almost wholly ineffective. October 13th, the New York Times, written by Christopher Caldwell. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a sentence in here where he says, it was not a coup attempt, and even if you believe it was, Mr. Trump was not leading it. So, so first of all, the uh, description, the bio of Mr. Caldwell is, Mr. Caldwell is a contributing opinion writer and the author of The Age of Entitlement, America Since the 60s. Now, they're not giving their readers the necessary, vital, essential context that this is a person who works for, works with mm-hmm. a right-wing think tank that is given over to the big lie. Yeah. So why are you printing it? And in a way, that is a distortion, and that is a way of lying and misrepresenting yeah. um, reality to readers. So, yeah. You know, one would think that at least self-preservation uh, might kick in here uh, in some of these newsrooms at this point. I mean, without democracy, after all, as as you sort of alluded to, their own business models, uh, it seems to me, are threatened. Uh, you know, I mean, Donald Trump has talked about fake news. He's talked about, you know, taking away their their broadcast licenses or whatever he, he thinks he can do. But, you know, I, I don't know if I really ever hear that discussed by the very media outlets who are ultimately the most threatened by the very rise of authoritarianism that they seem to have trouble calling out by name. Uh, you know, even though they may be put out of business by these folks if they get the kind of control that they hope to get. Well, it's no it's no secret that, you know, Trump has used really dangerous authoritarian authoritarian tactics Mm -hmm. against the news media to undermine public trust in reporting that comes out that's negative about him and his corruption um, and uh, you didn't mention what he said at a recent rally, which was the solution to getting reporters to give up their sources is to throw them in jail yeah. uh, and that under the threat of rape, that they will then begin to give up their sources and talk about what he calls leakers. He, he said, um, he said so under the media is not sorry. He said under the threat of rape. He made allusion to um, uh, that they would have a bride once they like once they realize they'll have a bride in prison. Oh, um, that they will start they will start speaking immediately. Good lord! I, you know, uh, Brian, I, I I do find it fascinating that these very same media outlets that seem to have you know such trouble describing what is going on here for what is actually going on here. The very same outlets seem to have no trouble describing, you know, leaders and candidates in other countries, you know, Brazil's uh, Jair Bolsonaro or Italy's Georgia Maloney or Viktor Orban in in Hungary. And, and of course, Vladimir Putin in Russia. They have no problem calling them far right autocrats, etc. But those who support those very far right autocrats in those other countries, those those 
folks who support them here in this country, including Trump, his minions uh, in the, uh, you know, the, the, the CPAC apparatus and even outlets like Fox News who celebrate those far right autocratic leaders. They are not described in the same way by our own media. Uh, are the corporate media allowed to, you know, take sides in other countries, political affairs, just not here in the U.S.? Is that seemingly how they see it? Well, you know, I can't speak too deeply to that, but what I would say is that, you know, the reporting and the, the, the frames that exist in our country, you know, when you're reporting on, on countries outside of ours, yes, it's much easier to be more clear-eyed because you are less likely to have subscribers in a foreign country mm -hmm. who are, you know, impacting your profits, right? Um, it's more of a question of, like, why do we get this both sides framing in our country? And, you know, we know that corporations have a fiduciary obligation to make money for their shareholders, a legal obligation. Um, and so the New York Times, for instance, is a $5 billion enterprise. And people like to assume that people on the right don't read the New York Times, but they absolutely do. Mm -hmm. um, so a core reason for the both-sizing of democracy in America, and when we're talking you know, about our media and how they deliver frames to us and narratives to us, is the profit imperative of maximizing one's audience. Um, I think a thing that people might think is not true, but I, I think is quite true, is that you know, when the Times endlessly goes to diners to interview Trumpers mm -hmm. while rarely doing the same thing for Democratic voters, mm -hmm. um, Trump supporters read the New York Times. Yeah. And so Trump supporters who read the Times see themselves in those stories. Yeah. And progressives see people delivering quotes that make them tear their hair out. <laughs> and then they click through. And it's a big win for engagement. Um, so, you know, you have to see it through the lens of business. And you have to see it through the lens of what's best for that American yep. news media corporation when they want to maximize profit, maximize engagement so that they can then deliver to advertisers the statistics of that engagement. And um, that is definitely a filter through which we end up with the narratives that we do in our country. Brian, I got to get out, but uh, you know, when we asked if there was anything that you wanted me to try and include in your bio today, you referenced a quote from a former FCC commissioner, Nicholas Johnson, who served on the FCC back in the well from 1966 to 1973, who said, "Quote: Whatever your first political priority, media reform had better be your second. With it, you at least have a chance of accomplishing your first priority. Without it." You don't have a prayer. And I think he's, boy, right on the money uh, about that. Over the past two decades, you know, focusing on things like election integrity and the environment, I have found Commissioner Johnson to, to be exactly on point. I've often said myself, we cannot have, for example, election reform until we have media reform. So, uh, you know, I'm not even sure if it should be uh, your, your second political uh, priority at this point. I think about that a lot, too. <laughs> the mess we're in. Yep. <laughs>
Yeah, it should be the first priority. Uh, I, I think at this point, maybe so. Uh, Brian Hansbury, uh, thank you for your work that you are doing to make it a top priority in this country. Folks can sign on to your uh, open letter to the media, I believe, over at MediaAndDemocracyProject.org. You can also be followed on the Twitters at Mad underscore democracy which is a great name mad for media and democracy mad underscore democracy uh also on twitter at fix media now by the way what's the difference between those two twitter handles brian so um uh, the mad underscore democracy account is sort of you know our more um public policy interested um talking really deeply about like how we can reform and uh, our fixed media now is more of that sort of activist bent of, you know, we just want Americans, you know, it's, it's a Sisyphean task, yes. but we want Americans to get involved, to get engaged, to be thinking about their media diet, to support local journalism, to engage with reporters and the people who make the news. We want people to demand from their elected representatives uh, that they make media issues a top priority. Um, policy is one of the most powerful tools to affect change in our country. And so that's what Fix Media Now is all about, is about getting other people to join us in this movement. Um, you know, it's maybe not the sexiest topic for everyone, but we want to make it a sexy topic. So that's uh, kind of what Fix Media Now is about. I find it pretty sexy. Thank you. Uh, keep up the good work, <laughs> brother. Uh, Brian Hansberry is the co-founder of Media and Democracy Project.org. Brian, really appreciate your time today. Keep up the good work, sir. Thank you so much. I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, it's, it's nice to be able to put voice to, uh, <laughs> to these extremely important issues. Our pleasure. Thank you. Okay, we have got to get out. I <laughs> yes. blew through yet another break uh, because I find media reform so very sexy. <laughs> and it's so important, too. It is really important. So uh, my thanks again to Brian Hansberry. My thanks as well to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com, along with an archive of what? Oh, I don't know, 15 years worth or more of these programs. You can, uh, while, oh yeah, while you're there, please <laughs> hit the donate button. Because as I said, we are listener supported, or you can go straight to bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do every day over your public airwaves without any corporate media bosses telling us what we can or can't or should or shouldn't say. You're welcome or thank you. Drop me an email if you like. I'm Bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you'll find me at the Brad Blog. We'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1837. That was the day that Louisa Lee Schuyler was born in New York City. 
she was dedicated to the causes of public health and welfare, especially for the poor. This led her to help found the Bellevue Training School for Nurses in 1873. It was the first nurses' school in the United States based on the principles of Florence Nightingale, the English social reformer who established modern nursing practices. Louisa had become concerned with the conditions found at the city's public hospitals. Along with three other women, she toured Bellevue Hospital, finding poor lighting, dire sanitary conditions, and even a laundry that had run out of soap. The women wrote up a report about their findings. They made the case that a professionally trained nursing staff would help remedy the situation. The work of women during the Civil War had shown the potentially important role of nurses in providing medical care. The women's request was approved on a trial basis at Bellevue. Bellevue Hospital had opened its doors in 1736, making it the oldest continually running public hospital in the United States. The first class of nurses included just six women. Early training focused on improving sanitary conditions at the hospital and seeing to patient comfort. But instruction grew quickly to include basic medical training. By 1879, enrollment had grown to more than 60 trainees. Proud of their accomplishments, graduates wore a school pin. Designed by Tiffany and Company, the pin portrayed a crane in the middle of a wreath of poppies. The school operated for nearly a century until the training program was incorporated into Hunter College. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2.